like years back, probably five years ago, it was Christmas. I'm like, what do you want to do for Christmas? I was thinking, I mean, as much as I like to help people, I was like, let's go get an Airbnb somewhere, you know? And um, Josiah said, you know, I really just want to feed the homeless and not like go to a soup Mm -hmm. kitchen. He bought all the food, made all the food, not traditional. He made like jerk chicken. He loved to cook. And we made all this food and we went into the town, actually where we are now, we're in the north side of Arcata. And we went out onto the plaza. That's where a lot of the homeless hang out. And we fed, we, we fed them his home cooked food, hot food on Christmas. That's what he wanted to do. Welcome to this episode of War Cry Podcast. We are an all Native run podcast discussing data, events, stories, issues, and historical connections about Northwest missing and murdered Natives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. My name is Emily Washings, and co hosts today are Patsy Whitefoot, Robin Pibashi, and Lucy Smartlout. For announcements, we just want to acknowledge everybody that's going through uh, fires right now. We have fires throughout the Northwest, including our guest who had to evacuate her home. Uh, So she is interviewing in a safe place right now, but our thoughts are with her and everybody else. Uh, Additionally, we still are in a time of pandemic. So everybody that's impacted by coronavirus or taking all these extreme measures, uh, including, you know, teaching your kids at home, Uh, our thoughts are with you as well. Today we have Liz Hildebrand. Thank you for joining us. I'll be reading a short summary of her son's case. On Friday, June 7, 2019, Josiah Joe Hildebrand, 25, and his friend John Cleary left the San Francisco area in a light blue 2004 Honda Civic Hybrid to begin their road trip to George, Washington. Both Joe and John were Grateful Dead fans and were on their way to see Dead and Company, a, a concert that featured former members of the Grateful Dead that were performing. This road trip would take them about 13 and a half hours to make it just in time to see Dead and Company perform on Saturday, June 8th at the George Amphitheater. Little did they know that Friday, June 7th would be the last day anyone would hear from them. By Tuesday, June 11, Josiah's mom, Lils, had not heard from Josiah as he wasn't returning any texts or calls, John's friend also reported not hearing from him since the day they left. On Friday, June 14th, news that Cleary's light blue 2004 Honda Civic was found abandoned, partially burned with traces of blood, was found just outside Wapato, Washington in an orchard. It was at this time that Liz contacted the Yakima County Sheriff's Office uh, to inform them that her son Josiah was also with John. And for our listeners, Wapato is approximately 84 miles from the George Amphitheater in George, Washington. Sunday, June 23rd, Liz had decided to create the Help Bring Josiah Home Facebook page. Knowing that Facebook could reach multiple audiences, she had hope that it would aid in the search for Josiah. Uh, By the end of June, Liz was officially informed that the FBI would be taking the lead on this investigation. Six months after the car was found in January 2020, the DNA results uh, confirmed the blood from the car was a match 
to Josiah. The whereabouts of John and Josiah at this time were still unknown. Although various news articles had reported that uh, evidence pointed to possible homicide. It wasn't until August 5th, 2020, that two sets of remains were found by construction workers on the highway south of Toppenish, Washington. Through dental records confirmations by September 21st, 2020, Josiah Hildebrand and John Cleary were finally found. This whole time, Josiah's mother, Liz, had created a large social media presence in hopes of aiding and building awareness of her son's case. All while living states away from the scene, Liz had built a community of local and national people who shared and gave thoughts of love and support to Liz and Josiah's family. On this page, she shares not only information about her journey, but thoughts along the way as a mother and an advocate. On September 3rd, 2020, a memorial cross was set up near where John and Josiah were found, donated by local community members and members of the Yakima Nation, who held a small ceremony for Josiah and John. We want to acknowledge that this is still an open investigation and that there are aspects of the case that Liz is not at liberty to speak of. The manner of death of Cleary and Harold DeBrand is considered a homicide, and the cause of death remains under investigation by the FBI. So please, those with any information, please contact and call the FBI's Yakima Field Office, 509-453-4859 or 1-800-248-9980. Uh, tips can be submitted to tips.fbi.gov. So, you know, Liz, being in an online public search is such an emotional process. And I really want to have somebody that's also been in a process and searching for a loved one ask our first question today with you and kind of dialogue. So Patsy, I'll turn it to you. Uh, thank you, Emily and Robin. And welcome Liz to our podcast today. I appreciate you making the time to be with us. So for me as an educator, longtime educator here around the Yakima Reservation and um, you know at the state level as well, I always want to know about the person. You know, who, you know it's just like you know, learning about the students that are part of your classroom. And I, so if you would share about your son's personal character and career goals in life, I think that would be helpful. We want to know who mm -hmm. he, I want to know who he was. It's important to know who he was and his aspirations that he had in his life for, you know, for, his, for himself, his family, and his community. Please share mm -hmm. with us. Uh, well, thank you, uh, Patsy. Um, Josiah was, well, I think it's important to me to, to just say that he was my only child. I was a single mother, and we had an incredibly tight bond. Uh, we went through a lot together, a lot of changes. I had him very young, uh, so we also grew up together. As a young boy, he was uh, raised in the mountains, in nature, and he was really drawn to nature. He loved to fish. He loved to swim. He was also very adventurous and liked to build things and climb trees. And to me, everything like normal little boys do. Um, not so much today, you know, but we lived a very country life, big garden, very helpful, sweet little boy. I often heard from different parents that they wanted to have Josiah. Josiah would go uh, to friends' houses to play and you know, he would come home with their parents saying, you know, we'd like to have Josiah over more often. We think he's a good influence on our kids. You know, um, he had a very soft and gentle heart, even though he was very boyish. As he grew up, he definitely had a love for music and loved to build things, loved to create, uh, was 
really into Legos growing up. There's, I think, from probably about, well, he was even played with the big giant ones as a baby, but from about three on when he's creating lists, you know, that's all he ever wanted. Legos, 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 birthdays, Christmas, everything. And in school, he, I, he was an independent lear learner. Um, he did actually um, struggle with classic structured schooling. He was a good independent learner, uh, very intelligent, but also struggled with uh, testing and that kind of stuff. But eventually made his way in from 10th grade on, he was in an in independent high school, uh, still county run, state run, but it was for kids who didn't quite fit in with the you know, regular structured school. And he was allowed to go at his own pace and then also do things like wood shop and ceramics and really excelled there and got really good grades and moved through very quickly once he was allowed to do it in his own way. Um, so he always had his own way of doing things. Um, he was an independent thinker very intelligent. He had, uh, I have a little picture of him here, so if I keep looking away, it's because I'm looking at him. Uh, <laughs> uh, he had um, a real thirst for information and a mind like an elephant. And uh, when he got interested in something and researched it, uh, he was always just um, so informative and inquisitive and yeah, he was just a really amazing person to speak to. Loved to garden, um, uh, farming, outdoors. The most recent thing was uh, when he got out of high school, he didn't um, have a desire to do, he was finished with school. Uh, didn't have a desire to seek um, higher education, uh, which was totally fine with me. And had a desire to go into fire for quite a few years. He was able so... Okay, so I could get my timeline straight. He went missing in 2019. In the winter of 2019, he moved home with me, which was the first time in six years that he had been home, seven years. At that time, he got a job. We had a little uh, uh, mom and pop uh, mill in our community. He got a job at the mill, and it was very kind of family-oriented environment. Everybody took care of each other went fishing outside of work and that kind of thing. Also got involved in our local volunteer fire company who um, provided funding, you know, for him to go to the Mendocino County Fire Academy. They paid for that, um, which when he finished with the academy, he would have gone on to then be a member of the fire company and then be able to fight fire. He told me, you know, that he... Um, I remember him saying, he's like, he was talking about the fighting fire, mom, I really want to do this. And he said, I just can't imagine any greater job in life than being able to help other people. At the same time, I'll say that my son did struggle, struggled with um, kind of finding his way. He was a late bloomer. He went through, you know, I, I had sleepless nights, you know, but his heart was always in a good place. And I felt like, you know, that given time he would, you know, find his way back and um, be able to fulfill these things. So he only finished part of the fire academy and it was his intention uh, last year to fire academies in the winter. So it was his intention to, um, during the winter, finish fire academy. And then with all of these big fires that are going on right now, that's what he would be doing. And 
it's kind of, I don't really like the word coincidence because I don't know about that, but to me, I, I definitely have been thinking about him with all the fires that have been raging. I've been talking to him, you know, that, oh, this is what you would be doing now. And, and he really wanted to have children, you know, Ugh. he was really looking forward to having children and was so gentle with um, little kids. And I think he felt safe with them, you know, uh, and animals too, you know, and uh, I still have two dogs that both came through him. Uh, they were our dogs and he was their papa. And that's how they knew him is by that word. And they're all sleeping now, but I don't say that word around them because they get excited. They go looking for him, you know. Um, but a big hearted person, you know, very big hearted and gentle. Um, so people that were fortunate enough to cross paths with him, uh, nobody had, I have not heard anybody have a cross word about him, honestly, anyone. Um, and like I said, it doesn't mean that he was perfect. He was not perfect. He struggled, but just very kind hearted, kind hearted individual. Thank you. Your, you know, your words about him, about your son, that his heart was in the right place, I think, for, you know, for the individuals that we have here around our area. Similarly, families would say our family members' hearts in the right place. They have big hearts, and I really appreciate that because in my case, I had my sister who's been missing for years and cousins who've been murdered as well and haven't been solved. Mm -hmm. uh, for years and so you always want to have you know the best thoughts that you can for your for your loved ones and really appreciate that and appreciate your sharing with us about your son so my next question for you liz is a little bit more about yourself and how you have taken care of yourself during this time since you had found out that josiah was missing um, what have you been doing for self-care what has helped you cope through some of the more strenuous times um, that you've had to work through? I would say, so I, I have been caring for myself since the beginning. I would say only more recently it, did it develop into something that I would describe as conscious, conscious self-care. In the beginning, Oh gosh, to think back to that time, it was so crazy. It was like a movie. There was, um, it was not real, but I really accepted that I was in it. And I really switched into um, survival mode. And that's what has been described to me because I was describing, so I have a therapist. So that's one thing I'm doing. I found out, I got the call. So what had happened was um, my son was actually looking for a ride to go to that concert. He did not have specific plans with John to go. He was looking for a ride. He was on his Facebook trying to find a ride. And this is, uh, this band is one that people travel to go see. So, you know, is anybody going, can I get a ride? And he was frustrated he couldn't find a ride. Then he found a ride. And at the last minute, the ride fell through. And so he expressed frustration about that falling through. And he got the ride with John without anybody knowing about it. On that trip, John had taken a selfie of the two of them and passed that selfie around or just sent it to a friend. And then when this news came up and people knew about John, or at least something had happened, not specifically what, they were passing that photo around. And eventually it got to a, a friend 
who recognized Josiah and she got in touch with me. So that's why it took a week. It was June 7th, which was a Friday to the following Friday. I'll never forget where I was, you know, when I got that message um, asking me to urgently call. Uh, and I called and um, she was near hysterical um, that something happened and so on. And so I started calling all the appropriate people to figure out what was going on, you know, try to track down exactly where is this and so forth. When that happened, oh gosh, I was, when I say I was speechless, it was like on every level, like the entire world stopped and, and I just froze. And issues came up for me that I can only identify now as honestly shame that, oh no, all of a sudden I'm gonna be in the public eye. People are gonna be looking at me. What are people gonna think? You know, and it wasn't a real direct thought that way, but it froze me in a, a point where I really couldn't take action. I just kind of stalled. And I think there was another aspect that I was hoping that it was just going to go away. It wasn't real. On the Friday, so I'm responding to this, I actually calmly called the members of my family and I said, look, this is what's going on. Uh, this is what I am doing about it. Um, I knew, I sensed that I needed to reach out to the public, but I was terrified. Because I knew when I did that, it was all going to begin. There's the, the possible loss of my child and what has happened to him. Is he still alive? And then the whole social media campaign, um, media in general. The things that we hear about people looking poorly or, or you know, the media swooping in and, and getting the big story and all this. And so on Saturday... I met a friend for dinner. They said to me, just looked at me and said, do you think it's time to get a counselor, a grief counselor? And I reached out before I even made the public announcement. I reached out to a grief counselor through our local hospice. And it's a community supported hospice. So they have a lot of freedom with who they help. They don't have the restrictions that the, the federal network or the more you know, um, national network of hospice. And, um, and I had a grief counselor by Sunday that I was talking to over the phone. And I had a long conversation with her on Sunday afternoon. And she was incredibly helpful. It was also really helpful to me to just be able to like dump all of this on somebody. Uh, and then I made the announcement Sunday night. So the self-care for me started then. I likened it back then to, I, I felt like the plane was going down. Um, I remember kind of joking, but not joking about it, but the plane's going down and you totally ignored the flight attendant in the beginning about where the exits are. And so you're digging through the pocket, trying to find the, the handout and looking at it. Um, and figuring out how to get your life vest and all this stuff on. And, and that is what I did in the beginning. I was this, I understood the gravity of the situation for myself, how it was going to affect me and that I needed to build my safety net in order to catch me. I did really understand that I was really in harm's way, you know, and so I got a grief counselor early on that I met with weekly that I called more often. Uh, sometimes I met with her twice a week, started getting, I, I, I'm not sure if I had started already because I also suffer from uh, back issues, um, but I started dealing, getting acupuncture to help deal with those things. 
Um, I talk about self-care a lot too. I think people get confused and I do not want to discourage people from taking bubble baths, but um, bubble baths are not what I call self-care. <laughs> I say, you know, um, you can take all the bubble baths in the world, but if you get out of the bubble bath and you have a lot of negative self-talk going on or you're unwilling to ask for help, the bubble bath's not going to help you. My thing was um, to find the courage within me to speak, to dump the shame. And it's such a strange thing. You'd say, well, why would you be ashamed? But fear is such a powerful motivator, you know? And, um, and there was just so much to be af uh, afraid of. And there was so much that was confusing. And um, other things were this real kind of robotic. Life felt very robotic. And I was like, Liz, you need to eat. So this was the beginning of summer, the beginning of heat. And usually I lose weight in the summer. <laughs> I get the summer weight didn't lose uh, weight that summer because I was like, you need to eat. I could function with the breakfast and lunch. I could not cook. I couldn't even scramble an egg because I was so frantic and there was so much going on in my mind and the anxiety and all this stuff. So then I committed to every night, I, almost every night, I went out to dinner. Um, I accepted the cost of that, you know, because that's not something I would normally do. But it wasn't just to eat, it was commune with a friend. I would go with a close personal friend where I could just sit and, and be with them. Other things that I did were allowing myself to cry when I needed to cry. And that meant in public, to get comfortable with crying in front of people, uh, to feel weepy. Those were things that I always used to kind of hide because I associated tears with my anxiety because um, I've suffered from anxiety for a long time. So if I felt tears coming on, I would always choke them back, you know. Uh, so all of these things to me were the self-care and taking supplements that would help with brain health. I had PTSD set in in September, but I did not know that's what was happening to me. I knew that I was very on edge. I was actually had suicidal thought. I didn't want to die. I wanted it to stop. The madness was from when I woke up until I went to sleep and I just couldn't take it anymore. So I had feelings like that. And I did go to stay with a friend. I you know, reached out for help and I recognized that I should not be alone. I actually closed my business. I had a successful and very busy dog boarding business that I had to make the decision to close the business, uh, which some, you know, difficult because of course financial, but then there was pride involved there too. I was proud of this thing. And, and actually, so I, I closed the business for just a couple of months, I thought, and I did not get better in the time that I thought I would get better. So I had to continue to do that. And I really recognized that I needed to advocate for myself. I need to take care of myself. I needed to, to say yes when I wanted to say yes, say no when I needed to say no, because I have, have been a people pleaser. I like to say yes to people. <laughs> that moved on to, so I stayed with a friend for a number of months. Going home, I would have panic attacks when I went back to my house. And over time, what I by January, I identified that there's something really wrong here, that this is not just... When I say just grief, I am not diminishing grief because it is huge, but traumatic grief is actually, <clears throat> excuse me, is much different uh, than grief that we uh, expect or can witness or that comes even from natural causes. The thoughts about what possibly happened to our loved ones, 
And I found in looking into this and kind of researching this that uh, many people that, you know, I would uh, have flashbacks to what happened to him, even though I wasn't there. And I didn't even have information to build this thoughts that I would have. And they were waking flashbacks, you know. So I then reached out for, I recognized that I needed to go beyond a grief counselor that I needed more specialized. I had a um, more acute issue that I was dealing with. And so I found a therapist and just in our small area, and it's one of my biggest blessings, uh, who her background was working with families who had lost members to suicide and homicide. So she really knew what was going on with me. Um, and I actually see her uh, via Zoom because of COVID. I see her twice a week. I actively participate in that. This trauma has triggered old trauma and the PTSD kind of ebb and, ebbs and flows. It's actually um, spiked again in the last couple of weeks and panic disorder also they uh, diagnosed me with. So kind of chronic panic attacks and that has returned. It's also self-care for me is uh, really being compassionate towards myself of not expecting too much and compassionate towards life. Like when you think about happiness, you know, I am happy. I have a good life. Am I happy about what happened to my son? No. Are most of my days good? Like excite? No, <laughs> most of them are very heavy and full of sadness. But I think when I consider everything that I'm going through, that I'm doing well. And I know that that has to do with like self-love that it's okay. It's okay that you haven't reopened your business. It's okay to talk about mental health issues when um, that is something that has social stigma around mental health issues. And I've had to do that for myself while advocating for him. I've had to advocate for myself because I am a victim as well. He was a victim to that crime and I am a co-victim and I have to treat myself that way. That was a long answer, but hopefully that's good. I just wanted to say that I really appreciate you describing the different emotions and realizations that you had in that process, because I, I feel like at times it can be difficult for people to articulate that, especially if they don't know that's what they're experiencing. <clears throat> just kind of like a side note, my ex-husband actually did go to war for 14 months and he had PTSD. And that's a different type of, you know, um, scenario that we had to work through. But as a family, you know, it was hard to see that this was happening. And how do you try to help somebody who at times didn't realize that that's what they needed or had even felt like, you know, they're in a space to receive that help. So I just wanted to extend my thank you because I feel like a lot of the feelings that you had expressed are not so unusual in our community as well, especially when it comes to feelings of being alone, of being isolated, you know, and I am so grateful to hear that you were able to have somebody that you could share space with in the evenings that could support you and be there for you. And so, you know, in that sense, I hope that that is something that our audience does get from this mm -hmm. is, is your perseverance through, through this. So thank you for your words. Oh, thank you. You're welcome.
I think it's really important to, we have to learn to ask others for help and to accept help. But I also know that anyone else can only help me as well as I am willing to help myself. I have learned so much through this about self-forgiveness. I mean, that is self-care. To look back at everything that you wish had gone differently and to be able to forgive yourself and love yourself through that. You know, the phone calls that should have gone differently or the, the decisions that were made in life, you know, and to be able to look at myself and really see that over the course of Josiah's lifetime that I always made decisions that at the time with the information I had were the best decisions. Um, but that is hard for me, you know, because when you lose someone, they're gone. So this idea that there's going to be time to rectify those things or for them to fulfill, fulfill dreams that you always wanted for them, that it's over. And so then how do we process those things? And I need help. I mean, sometimes I will, um, I wrote actually um, in one of my recent writings or more recent, maybe it was a, even a month ago or so, I have such a bad idea of time. It's really blurred for me, but I, I had um, a session with my uh, therapist where I was saying, oh, you know, if the, all these different points in time in my life, you know, like I was a single mother, so I had to work all the time. And so Josiah was, you know, what we used to call growing up a latchkey kid, you know, um, that he came home to an empty home many times. And oh, if it just hadn't been that way. And if I had done this, if I had found a, I, I was important to me to find a stable father figure. And that's something that did not work out for us. Um, and I went through this list of all these things that, that uh, had gone not the way I wanted them to. And she looked at me because we're on Zoom. <laughs> she looked at me and she said, Liz, Josiah died from a senseless act of violence. And I looked at her and I was like, oh, oh, oh yeah, that's right. That's right. Like I had to be snapped out of because our minds, which I'm also learning. And that's the other thing that's been really helpful with the therapist that she can help explain to me what is happening inside of my mind, this struggle. It is so hard for us to conceptualize what has happened to our loved one that we go back and we try to rewrite the past thinking that if we did that, it would have a different outcome. Things would change. And so in doing that, we fall into self-blame and shame and that it was somehow my fault, you know, and, and it's not conscious though. It's not that I'm having conscious thoughts that like, oh, it's all my fault, because that would make more sense. I'm not thinking that way, but I go through this. So it's been really helpful for me to just have somebody who really understands what I'm going through, look at me and say, please stop, stop, it's okay. Because our family and our friends, they all say, oh, it's unimaginable, it's unimaginable, which bless their hearts. I, I understand it comes from a, a good place, but I need somebody who it is imaginable, who does understand and says, what you're saying makes complete sense to me. It's kind of like when we have a health issue and we go to our general practitioner, they say, I've never heard of this before. And then you go to the specialist and they say, I see this all the time. You know, so that I think is really important in these different groups. And I will say one bad experience I had in January when I was figuring out um, that traumatic grief is different than regular grief. I tried to join, I won't call them out, but there's a national network of people who have lost their children and they have meetings. I, and I tried to join a group 
um, on Facebook, desperately seeking help because I was, I was really suffering and I was very excited and um, oh, I found my people kind of thing. And I went into this group and I described uh, just that my son, you know, and there was a homicide investigation, he was still m missing. And I was actually contacted by one of the moderators of the group and I was asked to leave because I did not have his body. That they suggested that I join a, an anticipatory grief group, you know? So like, if you know that your cat even is gonna die in six months, that you have anticipatory grief leading up to the actual event or somebody has cancer, that kind of thing. So <laughs> I was crushing uh, and very upsetting, but to not give up in that, you know, and say, okay, well, you guys don't wanna help me. I'm gonna go look for help over here and not to kind of feel defeated and curl up and just wish it all go away, you know? When we were able to speak preliminarily to this, you had said some things that really struck me and it was about how certain emotions can give you power to do things. Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. kind of like, and you also talked about where that power leads and if it's useful or not. Mm -hmm. And I was hoping you could speak to that a bit because again, kind of the relevance of why we wanted you on the show is because of the, the proximity to your son's case on our reservation. And again, we know that there's limitations to what you can say, but um, that's kind of what it is that I feel and express to you to this the other uh, last night about even our tribal membership has these emotions, you know, they have anger and they have mm -hmm. things like they want some kind of closure or justice, you know, when it comes to mm -hmm. these cases, because uh, your son's case, in addition to many other cases just within the last couple of months, you know, and Emily speaks to this in a lot of our introductions to our episodes is just within the last few months since COVID started, we've had like, what, what was it like nine you were mentioning? Just a number of different homicides, either tribal members being perpetrators or victims. And you mm -hmm. know, that, that brings up a lot of emotions. I know for a lot of our, uh, are tribal people. But again, mm -hmm. uh, so the part of the question is if you could speak again to those emotions and kind of the power that it can in, imbue you with and what you can do with it. Uh, the second question is, you know, I've lost a lot of relatives within the last number of years, but we think about our relatives and we think about what would they say about this situation right now? You know, and some of it's kind of entertaining, like my dad, like, what would he say about COVID? Like, would he believe it? Yeah. Well, would he not? You know, so I'm wondering, what do you think your son would have said about COVID coming up? I have said many times he would be very frustrated. He would not be happy at all about it. I have wondered if he would fall into the group. I don't think he would believe it wasn't real um, because some of that is coming up now, uh, which is really unfortunate. And I think I, interestingly enough, like, well, on the COVID topic, I feel like the, the trauma of losing a loved one or the idea of people dying from COVID kind of falls into that category of things that people can't imagine, don't want to imagine. There's so much kind of fear. They have a fear response to it. And so the fear response is to uh, ignore that it even exists you know, or that idea of like, um, I may be speaking out of line, but kind of like, 
you know, the MMIP movement. Well, I don't know anybody who's gone missing. Is this really happening? Where do they get their numbers from? You know, and then it's the same with COVID. And I was watching COVID unfold because I was in uh, a lot of the tribal Facebook groups in order to share information about my son's disappearance and stuff. And so I was seeing that come up in my social media feed about people losing loved ones and all this. And I was so moved by that. But he would be very, he would be very frustrated by the constrictions of it, the additional uh, stress or pressure. Um, he did not deal with uh, stress really well. We had so many similarities and he was resilient in his own way, but we were different that way too. Yeah, and then now, uh, I, like I was saying earlier, I have uh, found myself when I was driving, evacuating yesterday and uh, um, driving up to the hotel where I'm staying, I was talking to him and saying, you know, uh, that he would be out fighting these fires. And I actually even thought, oh, if he was still alive, would he have lost his life in, in the fires, you know? Um, how would I feel about him being out there um, and being in harm's way? And oddly enough, I had the realization recently, I, I'm, my understanding of this is constantly unfolding. You know, I am still very much in the midst of this journey. And I'd say probably much closer to the beginning than I even realize, even though I think it's been going on or feel like it's been going on forever. Josiah died doing something he loved. He was on his way to do something he loved. He was excited. He was in good spirits. In the same uh, vein, had he died fighting fire, if he was still here, he would have died doing something that he loved, you know. But yeah, I think about this kind of stuff a lot, you know, and I feel his presence a lot, you know, and it's comforting. And then sometimes I don't feel him at all. And I'm like, where are you? And I notice that uh, when I don't feel him is more when I'm very deep in grief. You know, and uh, I have had that exp explained to me that grief is like a veil. It's very necessary. But uh, the heavier the veil, the harder it is for our loved ones to get through to us. And um, I'm a spiritual person, so I do believe he still uh, exists in spirit, you know. But, yeah, I wonder about that. I've already said, oh, God, you wouldn't like this at all, you know. Yeah. When I look back on the way that I've handled this, and when I say handled this, some of it handled, I called it, cam I, I eventually called it campaigns, that I would run a campaign, like a social media campaign. That part of it, and then also my grief, but the fallout from the grief, um, that our landscape changes um, when we lose someone close to uh, us, especially to tragedy because people have a hard time um, processing that, you know, that people who were close to me, who I thought we were going to go through our lives together, could not handle it and like tapped out, you know, said, this is too much for me. I can't deal with it. Uh, I had to deal with that heartbreak on top of this massive heartbreak uh, that was going on with my child. And like I was saying earlier about in the beginning, everything was very uh, survival oriented. It was very methodical. It was not, I think it fell back on some of my spiritual base and, and that strength that I have within me. But I would feel those feelings of disappointment well up, uh, the anger well up. And I would 
it would hit me and it doesn't ever feel good. Anger doesn't feel good <laughs> when it first hits you. You know, it feels to me, it feels like poison, you know, and I would feel it and I'd go, oh, no, 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 don't go there. And I don't mean suppress it, not say, oh, this doesn't exist or not even go, well, they're trying the best that they can because that's not always the best thing. Not in the beginning, not in the beginning, but to focus my intention on what mattered. And so I would turn away from that and go, well, I need all of my energy focused on finding Josiah. I don't have time to deal with this. I'm going to put this off on the side and it will be dealt with later. And then as time went on, I, I know I wrote many times and expressed many times, I, I would feel this fatigue, this tiredness that was like on a cellular level. It was nothing coffee was going to fix. It was nothing sleep was going to fix, food, anything. And in those times, especially towards the end, while it ebbed and flowed, but it definitely got much more intense towards the end, where I was saying, I don't know how much longer I can do this, not indicating that I was going to give up because I wasn't going to, but really like I, oh, I was so tired and so mm, discouraged. And um, so I would take that and I'd go, okay, well, I have to respond to this. And so I would turn that energy and I would put out one of these uh, campaigns, you know, and I would uh, post in the um, Yakima groups. And that's one thing that I did in the beginning is one, I found the, the Yakima Scan Missing Persons group, which I found a lot of support there, uh, Washington State Missing People. I believe there's one for that too, as well as a national. Um, and then I turned towards the tribe, uh, to the Yakima tribal groups, um, because I knew that that's where my answers were. And, and I would run these campaigns um, looking for my son and not just a missing persons piece, you know, not just a poster. Um, there was a reward attached to uh, his remains being found as well, not to that, um, but to talk about him as a person. And I would put this thing out there with the very last bit of energy that I had, and, and I would throw it out into the universe, and then all of this support would come back. And when everybody, I felt like, and I believe, when everybody turned their energy and focus this energy to love and support and compassion and understanding that that energy then lifted me back up. It was almost like I was drowning and it would push me back up so that I could breathe again and I could go on again. And I started to identify that these are the things that are, are helping me. This is where I'm getting my energy from. And so I really, there's a lot of reasons, like when nothing ever good comes from anger, I'm actually an impassioned person. <laughs> I have been uh, argumentative in my life. Um, so it's not that I'm a real pushover, uh, but I had to get really focused on what is it that I'm trying to do here? One, for me to stay in my grief, to stay with my son in my heart, I have to keep my heart open. If I get angry and start blaming and falling down that, I leave my son because I cannot be in the dark with that and stay with him in the light, which I know that's where he is. So a lot of it was also to honor him. I did not want to turn my back on him. And also too, why I was open about my grief and really wanted to allow my grief to flow, to fall out of me um, so that I could stay with him. 
I think a lot of people experience grief in a way and it's just so overwhelming and it's so heavy that we just feel like, oh, I just can't, I can't think about that right now. I have stuff to do, you know. But for me and my thinking, I felt like if I do that, I turn my back on him. I like that there's like a, a saying that is uh, what grief, grief is love with no place to go. And so the sadness that I felt around his loss and his disappearance and where was he was just a different way for me to experience the love that I had for him. And it's so important to me to, to stay with that. It's anger and just all of that. Like I was saying, it's just such a dark place. And, and on the survival aspect of it, if I go there, my life ends, you know, and I want my life to go on. I want to be able to continue to honor him and be the mother he knew me to be. So I think that's, yeah, really important. And I like, is it, I'm not sure if it's really a truly a Cherokee saying, but you see it floating around on Facebook sometimes where it says, you know, he says grandfather, um, you know, that grandfather is explaining that there's uh, inside of all of us, that there is a, a bad wolf and a good wolf. Is that what it is? And, and that they're fighting, they're warring. And he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And he said, whichever one you feed. I really like that and identify with that, you know. And everything that you said, Liz, I you know can relate to personally as well, because you have me going back and thinking about just where I was at. And I have a huge family, so you know everyone's at a different place. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate you sharing about you know those personal emotions that you've encountered and that you're continuing to work on. So one of the questions that I wanted to speak about uh, is when your son did when you did learn that your son went missing, I'm wanting to know about the, I, I think the critical steps you, you took to locate him, including when he was located. There are certain steps people go through and uh, it, you've answered some of, the, some of this, but I'm also wondering about kind of the legal implications of all of that. And I, and I stand you can't answer everything about that, but just what are some of the legal steps that you took? Because I think this would be helpful for families who face similar circumstances to know about you know, agencies, individuals who provided support um, in locating your loved one or having some understanding about locating the loved one. Well, first, you know, to put out this, when I first put out a, a, a thing on uh, social media saying, uh, my son is missing. You know, this is what he was traveling in. Has anyone seen him? And this is on June 16th. So nine days after he went missing, but two days after I uh, found out that that's what was going on. That post itself was shared over 5,000 times. So this thing started, you know, it it generated. And, and um, Robin mentioned earlier that I did start uh, Help Bring Josiah Home. It was a Facebook page. It was a place that I felt like I could disseminate information. At that time, we didn't even know if he was still alive. You know, I, I mean, it was, I had no idea. It just vanished, you know. Any recommendation that people gave that felt viable, I actually uh, wound up reaching out to a, a satellite radio station, like Sirius uh, radio station, um, where an announcement, or I was actually called in and talked to the DJ of that radio show, talking about Josiah's disappearance. So I took opportunities that came to me, um, getting into the Facebook groups like I talked about, 
um, especially being so far away. I think I'm, to be exact, I think I'm 680 miles away. And there were a lot of people saying, you should go, go there. And I'm like, and, to, and do what? You know, like, look where, you know, people say, oh, we're going to go and we're going to go on foot. Well, then we started getting into technical issues, which is the fact that it was on the reservation. Uh, it was very important to me to respect, even in my desperation, to respect the fact that this is reservation land, uh, beyond private land, um, that there are um, policies and you know laws and expectations. I did not want to get into this mode of like selfishness of, and it's funny even to use that word, because you would think in such a critical situation that all of those rules would go out the window. But I also did not want to, I did not want to disrespect the tribe, the Yakima people. I also didn't want to disrespect what law enforcement were asking. I did actually at one point ask people to stop searching. They actually were meeting up and starting to search uh, where they were intervened. Um, I had concerns about if they did find the location that they would inter um, mess up the crime scene. So I had all of these concerns, you know, and that I felt like it was almost vigilantism. I don't know if the, maybe that's kind of a little extreme, but it was really important to me to figure out the best way to facilitate him being found facilitate the investigation, not impede the investigation. I also did not want to alienate law enforcement. I was important to me for us to have a good relationship from the start. They were the ones that were going to help my son. I was not in a position anymore to help my son. I was not close enough, any of these things. I did not understand the lay of the land, um, et cetera. So, there were all of those considerations. People did speak about, um, there's different organizations of like, a, a, I believe it's out of Texas and I'm not gonna be able to come up with any of the names, but you know, mounted like horse, people who come in and search on horseback and, and it's all privately funded, you know, that you can access um, these resources. And I would inquire with law enforcement, uh, oh, this idea came up. What do you think about this? And they would say, you can't do that. We can't do that. Or, you know, who from the tribe is going to escort them? And so I had to go back and, well, to some people and say, you know, thank you, but no, thank you. I also, I think it's important too, to not feel like you have to answer to everybody because that's overwhelming. You know, everybody that comes forward from the public uh, also on that anger note, to you know, turn away from the the people or some of the comments. You know, people get a a little crazy. You know, I've had people um, say, "Well, if it was my child, you know, that I felt personally attacked that I was not doing enough." And and I tell you, that's hard. You know, especially when you're in a pretty dire emotional state to look over that stuff. And those were the things too that I wasn't going to feed that. So let's see. Um, Staying in contact with law enforcement, uh, building relationships with law enforcement, making my voice heard, being consistent. I actually set up a thing where, and it was more for myself. So my son went missing on the 7th. 
So I set up a thing within myself that was, if I had not heard any news, I was going to call in on around the 7th to check in and, and touch base. I think that so much crime happens in the world, uh, in our country, um, that people are desensitized to it. When it first comes out, it's the headlines, everybody goes, wow, whoa, you know, and within a week it's over. Uh, I did not want my son to become a memory of whatever happened to that guy or those guys that came from California. What was that about again? Where was that? My son was a human being and he mattered. I felt like what happened to him negated the fact that he mattered. And when I mean mattered, I mean really mattered. Um, so it was very important to me to keep that value of who he was as a human being. And just the fact that he was human, not, you know, a human being, he mattered. So I kept putting that towards the forefront. And that was important to me. And also in my grief, like who was it who was saying, I think either Robin or, or uh, Lucy, or I mean, Emily was saying earlier about it being isolating. Grief is so isolating, traumatic grief, even more isolating. Details of a case coming up that you cannot share with people, very isolating. So it was very important to me to connect with human beings, connect with human beings in the community because that fed me, that kept me going. And then as far as um, him being found, I mean, you know, it, you, could say, you could say it was random. I don't believe it was random at all. I personally believe that God, which, you know, I'm not a religious person, very spiritual person, um, but what I call God placed that man there that found him. Nobody else would have found him, I do not believe. Um, he had a very keen eye. And something caught his eye and he decided to go check it out. Leading up to him even being found, I was starting to really hit a wall. And I was speaking to that of how tired I was. And also that I was worried that it, this was growing cold, you know, and because I did a lot and I didn't, and I couldn't at the same time. I mean, I couldn't go out and do search parties or go knock on doors. I was also worried about people's safety, you know. I think you've hit upon some, you know, key uh, segments of the work that you did, such as, you know, going on Facebook and communicating. You had a response of 5,000 people mm -hmm. and then just continuing with your communication with you know, others and learning about organizations. And even though some of them may not have been productive, you at least reached out mm -hmm. and then also building that relationship with the various law enforcement that you did is important mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when families face this kind of situation, you're kind of frozen for a period of time. You don't know mm -hmm. what to do mm -hmm. and look at where are these resources that's supposed to help. And, and you're pretty much, like you said, in isolation for a period of time as well. Mm -hmm. So I think mm -hmm. Just what you've gone through, the emotions that you shared is important for everyone to hear, to, mm -hmm. to know those experiences that you went through and other family members are going through as well. It's not something that we want families to face, but that's mm -hmm. the reality. I mean, we just mm -hmm. have a young girl in Yakima, 14 years old, that's missing right now and her family's out on the media today and so and, and because I'm an educator in mm -hmm. working with schools you know mm -hmm. a young girl should be in school but now she's missing mm -hmm. so you know 
thinking about that family and where they're at. We, mm -hmm. we all have a responsibility to mm -hmm. continue to step forward mm -hmm. and support one another. And just your sharing with us is supporting, you know, what we need to be able to address here in this, this podcast. I think really what I did in, in hindsight, because it was right. not really intentional, is what you all are doing. It's the same thing by talking about the, you know, the MMIP movement. You take numbers, which my son was one and two with John. You take numbers and you turn them into people. You talk mm -hmm. about the people and the stories and the people affected and the communities affected by this. And if we can personalize these people and get the greater public to understand that it's not just a 14-year-old girl, you know, that this is who she is and this is what she liked to do. And these are the people who are missing her. And to get people emotionally involved because we're so detached now, you know, everything is just, and there's so much news and the headlines and we're so just kind of inundated with all of this information that we don't connect uh, mm -hmm. as easily heart to heart or sit in story with one another and commune that way. Um, it's all sound bites and texting and all of this stuff. And so I think it's really important to con really connect, like I said, connect with law enforcement, but connect with people. And I think too, like, you know, with the missing persons posters, it's very important to have all the correct information on that, you know, all of the date of birth and all this stuff. But I think along with that, when we share those, that it's not just like a digital flyer that's flying past us, um, but that there is a story connected to that, you know? Yeah, you know, I, I, have been following what you've been saying online, um, your raw and emotional pleas for help. And, you know, when he was found, it brings me to this time, like, you know, we talked about this more in depth earlier, but I'll just summarize it, you know, about 10 miles from where your son was found, uh, I had an accident with my siblings and my best friend. Mm -hmm. And we were hit and we went down this very steep embankment. Um, the authorities still don't know why um, the car stopped. Mm -hmm. uh, now they've constructed it so there's a guardrail and different things like that. And when I was thinking about where he was found in that location, it brought me to this time, like, it brought me to this time of like thinking about who would leave somebody mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. um, culturally and spiritually, we have a lot of our own beliefs about burials like that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure, you know, in your religion or culture, what comes up with that, but it's a horrific, you know, not only the horrific act of violence, but the actual act of abandonment. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I felt that so strongly when I was reading your posts, it brought me to this time that was like, you know, I don't know, 20 years ago, over 20 years ago. And, you know, one of the first people on the scene was a woman that turned and walked away when we asked mm -hmm. for help. Mm. And I hadn't talked to my family about that in 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, and they were kind of asking, like, why are you checking on the milepost? Why are you asking about, why are you revisiting this? Why are you talking? And this is so strongly the aspect and elements of what comes through from our community about this aspect mm -hmm. of violence. Mm -hmm. We are a podcast that's focused, yeah, on Northwest missing and murdered um, natives. Mm -hmm. But there's also this aspect of non-natives that have experienced violence on our reservation. Mm -hmm. And I just, I wonder if you can talk about a time and tell us about that time of, of, of connection 
um, you know, I, I think about, you know, you've covered this a lot already about, you know, your emotions with it, but mm -hmm. in this aspect of connection, I wonder if you can almost take me to a time when you are reading a post, a very, I'm sure it's in your memory, in your mind. You know, when I asked my dad about this accident 20 years ago, he remembered exactly where he was at when he heard mm -hmm. that his daughters um, mm -hmm. hit. I wonder if you can take me at a time where you, you read something that either a tribal member said or somebody from our community said, and you just were filled up. And it, you just, you know, you felt hyped up to kind of continue this work. Because I think what you're doing is essentially modeling how to be very upfront and forward for loved ones? Well, I think, um, you know, a lot of what I've learned, like I was saying too, about not getting stuck in that anger. Um, some of the stuff that I'm, so I'm a very spiritual person. I have my own conception of God. Um, it is based on religious stuff and just other things. I am a free thinker. Uh, it has really freed me up to have a deep spiritual life and a strong connection with God because I get to make the rules for it. Uh, and I get to live in a way that um, feels right to me or, you know, I don't believe in um, a damning God or a punishing God that that is not comforting to me and I need my God to comfort, you know. So I have that aspect of myself. Now I'm also understanding too psychologically the way that our brains work. And this is, I've always heard a left brain, right brain, but I never really understood it. And I still don't understand that much of it. But you know, the, the left brain is very analytical and I have a good, clear, grounded, analytical brain. I, I have, and then the right brain is very emotional. Well, sometimes when I get stuck in a place of fear, or I get triggered in this PTSD type stuff or the panic gets going and the right side of my brain gets so flooded that my left brain, the one that's rational, can't really calm the right brain. So in the same aspect, I feel like too, oh, well, that's where all the wisdom comes, you know, because that's the part of me that I've really felt mature over my lifetime. Uh, less reactive and all of these things. But some of the times when I get hurt or scared, I feel like a three-year-old little girl, a four-year-old little girl. And like you're saying about no one would help, you know, that that's really the child in me, like reaching out and, and looking for my caregivers. And when you are hurting and people cross your path, they are a caregiver for you, you know. Um, and so to have them turn their back on you, or like I said, very close friends who left, it's very painful. In that, it was very important to me to not paint a whole community by the actions of one or a couple or a few or whatever it was uh, in any situation. Uh, the other way the brain works is they say, like, you can have 100 positive experiences with a dog, different dogs. One dog bites you, you're afraid of dogs. Uh, it's our survival instinct to be afraid to learn from fear, to learn from pain, and to learn from suffering. And it takes an incredible amount of courage then to turn back to that which hurt you and give it another chance, you know. So I did get so much support, and it was very moving to me for people to open up about their own stories. Um, again, to not say it's unimaginable, but to say, hey, I suffered a similar experience. Uh, this is how I feel. I said earlier, you know, and I'll just say here is that I, I just in this experience, I've always loved to write. I've just now gotten the courage to say, I am a writer. It takes a lot of courage for me to say that. 
So I am a writer. Part of my grief process has been to write about my emotion. I get all that energy, that nervous and just sad, frustrated energy come up inside of me and just so and express everything that I'm feeling. And so I pour it out onto paper and that in itself is cathartic. But sharing it with other people and having other people who say, this touched me in this way. I mean, a compliment is nice. That's nice. Everybody likes compliments. But to say that my heart, which I poured on that paper or on that screen, connected with your heart, and that now we are connected, or to be asked to be on uh, this podcast to say, we are all ex are experiencing similar things. How can we come together and support one another and learn from one another in this thing to help each other, lift each other up and move through this? You know, that's been huge to me. I didn't expect any of this. You know, I, I've always kind of felt like I was, you know, going through life and I was on my own, you know, and I had friends and everything, but I felt like if you want anything done, you're going to have to do it yourself, you know, and so to have the community come to me and embrace me, and I have to say that, you know, as a woman who identifies as Caucasian, to be embraced into Native culture is big to me. That, that means a lot to me, to not just say to me, hey, sorry about what happened to your son, but that's a state highway. Sorry about where it happened or whatever, or whatever other implications. But to say, we see you hurting. You, we're going to bring you in with us. You are not alone. That saved me and continues to save me from such incredible levels of despair, you know. So... You know, it's really been, for me to say a specific, uh, a specific incident is difficult because there's been so many. Um, but I read everybody, like people's comments and stuff. I'm often too overwhelmed to respond. Uh, but I read and I stop and I read everyone and absorb them. And it's funny because people have this thing about social media. And I used to always say, you know, social media is like a hammer. You can use it to build houses or to smash windshields. I want to build houses. To have that, to be able to use that tool in a way that's been so positive for me and to connect me with people who really understand what I'm going through in their own way has just been, it's been incredible for me, incredibly helpful. Is that also how um, Carolyn Looney connected with you in the cross? So, yeah, so that's, yeah, that's the thing. So one correction that I'll do um, from the beginning of the podcast, the remains were found on, um, let me get my months right. The remains were found on August 5th, um, the remains of two people. Uh, Josiah was confirmed on August 12th, one week later. Uh, and then John, um, it was reported in the news that there was some issue uh, with dental records. So he was not confirmed until September 1st. And I can actually remember Carol, uh, Caroline Looney commented on some post somewhere on, I believe, the 14th of August. And she said, I, I have friends and I'm getting them to make a cross and I hope that this is okay. And then I think she, I believe she messaged me at some point, showed me the cross that had been made, but she also asserted that she did not want to place the cross until uh, John was confirmed, which I thought was just incredibly 
literally thoughtful, not just thinking of their family, but really thinking this thing out and not being hasty, you know. But to have, again, to have Josiah and John included in the tribe, because all of the other crosses they've made, I had read in the article that was put out that Tammy Ayer did after the placing of that cross, that uh, they've made 38 crosses since Memorial Day. Uh, with all the people um, lost to COVID, et cetera, to have them included in that. And again, embrace us in, we see you in this tragedy. You are not alone in this tragedy. We want to honor you the way that we honor our own people um, was huge to me. And so I did actually get to speak with her the night before, the night before they placed the cross. We wound up speaking on the phone oh, what a wonderful woman. And that too, that she's experienced loss like this, that she lost a sister, that she understands the grief and the, the waiting. And her sister too was uh, missing for 14 months, another similarity. And she expressed to me that part of this is, would help heal her heart, you know, for what she went through with her sister. And I think that when we come together and, or when we can, you know, I really believe in living in service to others. And if we can live in service, like I was speaking with a friend this morning that if me facing my fears, because I was a little nervous about doing this, if this can help somebody else, it helps heal me. So I was really moved by that and really beautiful. And they brought um, people from the Shaker Church that did a ceremony. And then to the... Um, the skull that Brad Gowdy, I believe his name is pronounced, uh, that he brought to, to, to recognize the deer, the, uh, I hope I uh, pronounce this correct, Yamush, is that right, Yamush? Um, which they Yamush. asserted they've, Yamush? Yamush. Yamush, okay, yeah. Yamush. You're good. Um, <laughs> um, uh, about the deer helping, you know, to locate, because the, the, fellow who found them uh, was a hunter and he liked to collect uh, antlers and that type of thing and that's that's what I mean too about that keen eye you know it's not that he stumbled on them he saw something out of the corner of his eye from far away that had the right color and he went to check it out you know but all of that the thought that was put into that you know is so moving to me you know it um for them to be honored, but then too for our grief as their families to be honored in that way. You know, that we, that whole thing of, I see you, we see you, you know, you are not invisible. Uh, we are here with you. Uh, that acknowledgement that all of us need so much, you know, and that's back to that same thing about having somebody walk away and say, I will not help you. That is, I do not see you. I did not see you. And then to have somebody stand there and say, I see you suffering and I am here and I will witness your pain. I am not afraid of your pain. Um, it's huge and empowering, you know. With great respect to everybody's spiritual beliefs and I would never uh, tell anybody to go against um, their own framework of what they believe of how things should go. In me dealing with my grief and what I needed to do to honor my son, I was questioned over it. I wanted to have a memorial for him when his body had not been found. There were people who spoke up and said, oh, well, I wouldn't do that. Why is she doing that? You know, I, would, I, I don't know why she's doing that. Where does she get that from? I did what I needed to do 
for healing. So that was not my intention for that memorial to be the only thing that ever happens for him. But the grief was so heavy and so thick then uh, within my uh, circle of friends, his circle of friends, my family, that I wanted to create a, um, an environment for all of those people to come together and to commune and, and hold one another, uh, both literally and, and figuratively, to be in grief together uh, and have a, a place for that to, to be held. And so I have gone against a lot of things that uh, people say they would do differently, but you can always say too, well, you don't really know until you're in the position. But I've had to follow my heart the whole time. I've had to do uh, what was right for me so that I could be comfortable and settled within myself as much as possible. And um, I think that that's really important is to when we go into this, to not say, oh, well, this is what people expect of me. This is what my family expects. My family doesn't want me to talk about it. Or my family doesn't want to do this. Or traditionally, we don't do this thing, you know, uh, but to do what is right for us for our own grieving process, because we have to be like grief takes place in the heart. So we have to be true to our hearts for that grief to really be able to flow and to be able to pass through us and to uh, change us because that's it comes to change us. And so I really wanted, I wanted to make that very clear that it's such a personal journey, you know, um, and I think we need to all feel empowered to follow that journey in the way that feels right to us. And, you know, I even thought there was something wrong with me because I was not experiencing anger. It would come in little snippets, but it just wouldn't really hit me. And I thought there was something wrong with me. Um, I thought, I, I even questioned at times, oh, gosh, is, is there something like am I a sociopath? <laughs> like, what's, what's wrong with me? Uh, but there's so many different aspects to grief, and we don't all experience all of them. Or if we get stuck in, in anger, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you or, or that you aren't spiritual. It's just that part of the grief cycle and that, you know, all of the different things that we go through. And it's all normal. And this whole thing of like, humanizing us and that we all are human and it's a human condition and we all experience these things and and to not like categorize it as that's a bad feeling this is a good feeling you know don't stick with the bad they're all just feelings and I try to remember for myself because sometimes it is so incredibly intense that it's like a wave you know how they talk about grief being a wave and I just picture myself in the ocean you know and having allowing it to wash over me not fight it and let it come and then i'll come back up for air um, and i do notice that i stay up for air um, much more frequently now you know and um and i've got a network of people who help push me up when i can't get up there on my own so one you talked about breaking that silence and so one of the things that we do is we have the message about breaking that silence and so we do have these uh, masks because we've also in the, been in the COVID. So, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. you've seen these mm -hmm. around too. Mm -hmm. So the purpose of this is to break, help break that silence uh, because we've mm -hmm. been silent for too long. And mm -hmm. so I think you've just opened up many doors and in, in shedding light on the life of your son. So I want to say really appreciate your being with us today. Thank you so much. And look forward to visiting someday. We, um, I heard you say something about possibly coming back up this way. I, I do expect to be back in the future. I have no uh, definite plan. I'm where my son was found. I was talking to Robin about this last night. To me, that is his grave. 
Mm -hmm. That is where he decomposed and went back into the earth. Um, And I felt that there. I did not expect that. I thought I was going to be kind of visiting a crime scene almost, you know. Um, But what I really felt there was um, his presence. And so um, regardless of why specifically I come back, I know that I will be returning in order to visit his grave. And, and two, I'm so grateful that he was found. I came up, I mentioned that I was up um, recently. I did come up in the month of uh, August to view his remains before he was shipped off because I knew, I, I understood uh, that when he was found, so many people said, he's coming home. And I was like, no, not, not quite yet, right. you know, um, but I understood that process and it was so important to me. People are like, are you sure you want to do that? Right. And, and my answer was, you know, well, I would much rather regret it, regret having done it, than regret not doing it when I had the chance. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was very healing for me, right. Um, right. me personally. And, and in some ways, even to help my brain Exactly. understand there he is you know after yes. all that time of like where is he you know and yes. and I one time I um I've likened it like when I've lost my keys like the first five ten or ten minutes of looking for your keys you're looking in all the normal places you know are they my purse or are they on my dresser and then after you look in all the normal places you start going like I'll look in the refrigerator I'm like did I leave <laughs> leave them in the refrigerator and the mind gets kind of irrational and starts looking anywhere. So I had been in that state and kind of picturing of what could have happened and all this stuff that to have tangible evidence of there he is and not just somebody telling me on the phone, we found him uh, was very healing for me. And um, also to the, um, oh, I have to say it's not a work pride, but to say that um, I feel that you are so incredibly blessed with the coroner that you have. You're such an incredibly beautiful man, uh, so compassionate and loving. That was wonderful. And then to be able to go uh, to his grave and to be able to sit with him and be with him. Um, and to just say, you know, in a different way, you are gone. I, okay, I see you are gone now. You know, uh, different than that, being at home and trying to accept it when there, but there's confusion and all of that stuff, you know. And so I'm, I feel incredibly lucky that my son was found, was found. And I understand that that is not really even the norm, you know. Um, so my heart goes out, you know, I was saying to Robin last night that I can relate to not being able to find a loved one because I was in that. But I, I, I mean, I can relate to that part. But I can't relate to never finding a loved one because I've been taken out of that group now. Yeah, or the fact that I got so much attention around my son that for whatever reason, however that worked out, there's so many people, um, like I said, emotionally involved in this, that I know not everybody experiences that. And I'm so grateful for that. And I know that is not necessarily the norm. I wish it was, you know. I wish as a community, as a culture, as a society, we started caring more. More about other people and less about ourselves you know, would, be, would be a really good thing. So, Thank you again, Liz, for I'm all chatty. of your words. I know, for all your words. They're all really helpful and you show a lot of grace. And thank you so much.
if you have a dedication or if you would like to dedicate this episode to anyone or anything. Well, you know, I, I wanted to recognize um, just, you know, that there were two people traveling in that car. One was uh, John Cleary, uh, who I did know, um, as well as Josiah. Um, there are two families uh, involved in this experience, great loss. Um, and then also two to the Yakima people um, for embracing me and my son's story the way that they have. I don't think people really recognize or always understand the power that these small acts that we do, you know, what that has. And it has um, really uplifted me and um, it's helped that healing is such a funny word. People say, oh, you're healing now. And it's such a long timeline that it's hard. I suppose that I am, you know, but it has been healing. It helps my healing to not feel ostracized or cast out. Um, so that, um, and then also to recognize the other um, uh, missing people, um, Yakima people that I've been made aware of, you know, um, uh, and Caroline Looney uh, and, and the acts that, um, that her idea of getting this cross made, uh, Rick and Sonia Dominguez, uh, who made the cross, um, Brad Gowdy, uh, Doris and George Strong, who came to do the blessing. And um, yeah, just the other people who have reached out to me, both publicly and privately, uh, to feel like that when I come up there, when I come to the reservation and when I come to Greater Yakima, I am not, I do not feel like I'm coming to uh, a foreign place. I feel like I do have support and a family there. Um, so that helped, especially this last journey, helped make that journey um, that much easier for me, you know. To feel supported there so um i also forgot to mention that the sign with the reward for josiah is actually on my ma's place you know i went out there and i took a moment when we gave our war cry in the last podcast and yeah. about you and you know continue to think about you in this journey we would like to give a war cry to corner jim curtis We'd also like to give a special thanks and war cry to our guest today, Liz Hildebrand, a writer and the mother of Josiah. For credits, this show is edited and produced by Robin Pibashi, logo by John Alney Schellenberger with Native Anthro, support from Native Women in Action, shirts by Nicole Pibashi. Uh, my shirt today is by Red Gelia with Yakima Nation. Uh, victims resource and music by Lee Sikakwapiwa. <laughs>